Open up your Bibles with me. We're going to be looking at John chapter 20 as we begin, kick off our sermon series on dealing with doubt. And I've worked at a church for almost half my life, and I think this is a fair statement. If it's not 100% of us in the room here today, those of you watching from home, it's like 99% of us on some level, in some way, have experienced doubt in our Christian walk. And maybe you're here because you're trying to figure out what you believe in the first place. Doubt can creep in in a lot of different ways. Some of us have experienced doubting whether or not God is real in the first place. Others of us have had doubts during a time of trial, of suffering. God, are you really there for me as you promise you're going to be during this time? Others of us have doubted whether or not God can forgive us. God, is your grace really good for me? I mean, this is a problem for me, the sin that I struggle with, and I've done this over and over and over. God, is your grace good for me? And we doubt and we struggle. And if that is you, the 99%, you're in really good company because as we just read, John chapter 20, actually the very first disciples, the very first eyewitnesses, the friends of Jesus, his closest companions, struggled with doubt as well. So open up with me, John chapter 20. We're going to back up a little bit. Let's set the scene a little bit, the context. We're going to start with Mary Magdalene, because Mary Magdalene, it says in verse 18 or uh, verse 11, is at the empty tomb, and the risen Jesus appears to her. They have a conversation. She comes to faith that Jesus has risen from the dead, and she goes back to the house, and she tells the disciples, verse 18, I have seen the Lord. Now, John doesn't cover these details for us, but we know from the Gospel of Luke, Luke says that when the disciples heard this from Mary, and there's actually a couple other women there, it seemed to them a fairy tale. It seemed an idle tale. They refused to believe the eyewitness account of Mary that she had seen the risen Lord. And so Jesus shows up. The doors are locked because they're afraid. The disciples are afraid that what happened to Jesus is going to happen to them. They're, they're scared. They got the door locked. Jesus does this uh, like Jedi trick. He just shows up in the house, which is why he says, peace be with you, because you'd be freaked out too if all of a sudden Jesus shows up in your house. God, Jesus, what are you doing? He says, peace be with you. He shows them his hands, his feet, his wrists, and then they come to faith. The disciples come to faith in the risen Lord. But Thomas isn't there. The text doesn't go into detail. Thomas doesn't, or John doesn't say why Thomas isn't there. We have our guesses. You know, think about this with me for just a second. Eleven dudes in a house for three days. I guarantee you they sent Thomas on a beer run. (laughs) Thomas, get out there. By the way, pick up some frozen pizza, maybe some beef sticks, some Cheetos, jar of pickles. (laughs) Pastor Abel's shaking his head at me. It was your idea that I become a pastor. Don't forget that. This is (laughs) your fault. But they tell Thomas, we have seen the Lord, and what is his reaction? It is remarkable. I mean, he like doubles down on his doubt. He says, I will never believe And if you think you're going to prove it to me, if you think that Jesus, I I want to stick my fingers in the nail marks, my hand, my fist in his side where the Roman spear pierced his belly. Thomas didn't believe the eyewitness account. The disciples don't believe the eyewitness account. And this seems to be what John is trying to show us in 
his gospel in this chapter, John chapter 20. Now, John is very interesting. John is different than the other gospels. His intent, he says very clearly, verse 31, he says that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. These things, put a bracket around that if you take notes in your Bible. What he's talking about are the first previous 20 chapters. And biblical scholars believe, theologians believe, that chapter 20 is actually the climax of John's gospel. This is what he wants to leave you with, the story of Thomas. Uh, John chapter 21 is more like an epilogue. Those of you who are Marvel fans, if you watch the Marvel movies, Marvel's pretty amazing. They get us to watch a movie for two and a half hours, and then we sit for an extra 10 minutes in those seats so we can see the one or two minute clip at the end of the movie on what's coming next, or they fill in the pieces that we didn't see previously. That's John 21. It's the end of a Marvel movie. It's an epilogue. John 20 is the climax, and John, thinking back at the end of his life, he's writing down these stories of Jesus, mentions this story of Thomas. The other writers of the Gospels don't. So what's he trying to show us? What's he trying to tell us? Well, uh, pastor theologian Tim Keller points out that actually what Jesus does here on first glance is what communication experts call a double blind. A double blind, communication speak, is putting someone in an impossible situation. Some of you who are married know that this happens in marriage quite a bit. For example, fellas in the room. Your wife puts on a pair of pants or a dress and asks you this question. Do these jeans or does this outfit, does it make me look fat? Have I gained some weight? Now you can tell the truth and you can say, yep, and you're going to get in trouble. Most of us, we say, no, baby, you look great. You look wonderful. Well, then she goes out with her friends who are more honest than you and they say, girlfriend, no, you can't wear those jeans. Those are retired jeans. And then she comes home and gives you the business. That is a double blind, a hopeless situation where you're going to get in trouble no matter what. And Thomas, it's pointed out, is in that exact same situation. Look at verse 28. He chastises Thomas, Jesus does. He says, do not disbelieve, but believe. And then Jesus says in verse 29, you actually don't need to see me, Thomas, to Believe. In other words, Thomas, you have no right to ask me for this question, for this proof. You don't need it to have faith in me that I am risen. But then Thomas, or then Jesus goes and gives Thomas exactly what he wants. He shows him, here, stick your fingers in my wrist holes. Stick your fist in my side. That's a double blind. Unless we believe that Jesus is perfect in every way unless you look at this from the lens of grace, and then you see that Jesus is actually doing something quite remarkable for Thomas. He is restoring him to his apostolic duties and responsibility. Let's jump back with me. Go to verse 19. What happens? Jesus shows up. The doors are locked. And the very first thing he does, he says, peace be with you, but then he breathes on the disciples his Holy Spirit, and he commissions them. He says, now you're going to do what I started, what the Father started through me, the forgiveness of sins, the restoration of life, and now your job is to go out into the world and tell them all about me, and especially tell them about the forgiveness of sins, the reason I came to this planet in the first place. Disciples, this is your job. And Thomas missed out on it. He wasn't there. And so Jesus appears to him again. He shows him, and he says, Thomas, 
You don't have to see me to believe, but you do have to see me to be an apostle. See, the apostles, it tells us in Acts chapter 1, when they went to replace Judas, they got together and they said, here's the requirements to replace Judas. It has to be somebody who uh, was with Jesus in his earthly ministry, so you had to see Jesus' miracles, you had to hear his sermons, you had to know a little bit about Jesus, but most importantly, Acts chapter 1 says, you had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. You had to see the risen Christ in order to be an apostle. Peter, in his epistle, says, I am an eyewitness of his majesty. John, the same guy who wrote the gospel, wrote an epistle, 1 John 1, 1, the very first thing he says is that I was an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's John's point. The apostles were given unprecedented access to the proof that Jesus rose from the dead. They talked with him. They ate with him. They fished with him. And for 40 days, Luke tells us that they sat at his feet, the greatest seminary experience a pastor could ever have. How nice would it be 40 days with Jesus instead of four years at seminary? Be amazing. (laughs) They were given every single proof that they would need to believe that Jesus had actually risen from the dead. Why? So that for the generations to come, when we experience our doubts, and we will, and if you haven't yet, someday I'm sure you will, so that we could have absolute confidence that what was written down for us actually happened. Unprecedented access to the proof and the reality of the risen Christ. The apostles had this, and they went out and they told everybody that they had seen the risen Christ, and they wrote it down for our benefit. So what do we do? Well, if that's true, then there's some application for us today that we can walk out of here and that we can use, we can apply in our lives when we experience doubt. And the very first thing that we got to do is what Jesus tells Thomas when he says, stop your disbelief and believe. What he's pointing Thomas to is actually the testimony is the witness of the disciples. He says, stop disbelieving your brothers in Christ, your sisters in Christ, but believe. And so point number one for us is we need to, when we doubt, listen to the apostles. Now here's a challenge. I think for most of us, we live, well, we all live in the modern world, but most of us have had an experience like this, whether you have thought this yourself or you know people who might be attracted to the teachings of Jesus but not necessarily the miraculous, that Jesus rose from the dead. That is rejected by many people in our culture. If you can't scientifically prove it, then it didn't happen. That's the mantra of our culture. And yet, the culture is extremely attracted to Jesus' teachings. Jesus, after all, says, love your neighbor. Very popular in our culture today. Jesus was socially minded in terms of justice. He sought justice for the poor, for the oppressed, for the widow, for the, for the slave. That's very popular teaching in our culture. And many people be, uh, believe, many secular uh, people who study the Bible think and believe and teach that Christianity got its start because the Christians went out there in the very first century and they taught people all these good things and the people responded to the teaching and they went out and started the Christian movement and they're very happy with the teachings of Jesus. Here's the issue with that. If you notice, when Jesus is having this conversation with Thomas, he doesn't mention anything about his teachings. 
Instead, he says, Thomas, believe the testimony, believe the witness that I am alive. That's all you need for faith. And as we think critically about this, you know, imagine first century, who were the people that were most attracted to the gospel that Jesus died and rose? It was the marginalized of society. It was the poor. It was slaves. It was women. Women were second-class citizens in that society, and they were extremely attracted to this idea that there was a God that they could relate to who loved them, who became one of them, gave up their life for them, and then went to heaven and is preparing a place for them. So, so just practically speaking, in our own culture, let's say you're driving home, you go down Arapaho Road after church. Yesterday I was at, on Arapaho Road. There's a homeless man standing on the corner asking for money. Now, if you were to go that way on your way home from church today and you stop the car, you roll down your window and you say, hey, buddy, I got good news. There's this guy, his name is Jesus. And he taught that you should love your neighbor. And he taught that you should care for the poor. And he taught that you should love unconditionally. And then you roll up your window. I don't know why I'm doing this. This is like a 1980s car. <laughs> you roll up your window and you drive off. Now, what have you really given that man? You've given him some more laws to follow. You've given him some teachings that he's already not living up to, and he is hopelessly lost. Not only is he poor, not only does he have enough to survive in this world, now he has to live up to a standard that's impossible to live up to. Instead, though, if you went to that man, you rolled down your window, and you said, hey, I want to tell you about Jesus. See, Jesus knows exactly what it's like to be you. Jesus was marginalized. Jesus was cast out of society and looked down upon. Jesus had no place to lay his head at night. Not only is Jesus just like you, but that Jesus, he was killed, he died. But three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, and now he lives and he reigns, and he wants you to know that you have a friend in Jesus, that you have one that you can relate to. You have one that will never leave you or forsake you or let you down. And in fact, this Jesus right now is preparing a place for you where there's no more hunger, there's no more looking down on you. And that Jesus is the one who died and rose for you. Do you see the difference? Now, that man may not come to faith by that testimony, but at least he has something he can sink his teeth into he can put his hope in and this is crucial for us to understand we have to understand this today if you call yourself a christian as important as the teachings of jesus are as life-giving as the teachings of jesus are the teachings themselves don't save it's the resurrection of jesus christ that saves the fact that he came into this earth to become one of us, to die, to give his life, to pay the punishment for the sin that we deserve to pay. He took it upon himself. Three days later, he rose from the dead, and now he reigns and lives. That will change your life. And as you hope in the gospel, then you can start to look at the teachings of Jesus and say, oh, this is the key to human flourishing. This is how I can make this world a better place, but it's connected to the gospel, to the death and resurrection of Jesus. If you remove the resurrection from Christianity, you don't just change it, you disembowel it. To let that gross term just sit in your head a little bit. So step one, we listen to the apostles. And second two, step two, as we close, application speaking, we need to look to the wounds of Jesus. Look to the wounds. Do you, do you think it's interesting? At least I do. 
as I'm reading this, why is it that the very first thing that Thomas thinks about when he's presented with the eyewitness account that Jesus is alive, why does he first go to the mortal wounds of Jesus? He says, unless I stick my fingers in his wrists, my hand in his side, why does he go there? And I think it's because emotionally speaking, he hasn't gotten over the death of Jesus. You've got to remember, Thomas is not only a disciple, he's actually a friend of Jesus. He spent three years in ministry with Jesus. He saw the miracles, he heard the teachings, he's been transformed to some degree by Jesus, but the very last thought of him is Jesus in pain and suffering and agony, and he's struggling. And so when he's presented with the evidence that Jesus is alive, I think he's emotionally protecting himself. He can't bear to think of Jesus on the cross and he wants to protect his heart you better not be lying disciples don't mess with me because you see his heart is so broken he's he's wounded because of what happened to Jesus and when he encounters the risen Jesus oh my gosh did you hear what he said this is one of the greatest testimonies in all of scripture he sees the risen Jesus he comes to faith and he says my Lord and my God Only one other person has says this, said this so far in Scripture. It's the Apostle Peter. Thomas has great faith, actually. And the point that John is trying to make for us today is that you don't have to see Jesus to be a believer. You have to see Jesus to be an apostle. So what do we do when we doubt? I want to invite you to spend some time listening to the apostles, to... When you're struggling, God, can I believe you? Can I trust you in this? Go to the apostles. Listen to them. Let them teach you. And when you're struggling with doubt, look at the wounds of Jesus. Because what you're really doing is reminding yourself how valuable and important you are in the eyes of Jesus, that he would go to that great of a length to save you. He would bleed for you. And he would die for you. Because Jesus Christ, your Savior, our risen Lord, loves you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.